Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glore on Amazon Prime Video. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jennifer Hickson, senior producer at The Moth, and I'll be your host. The Moth is true stories, personal stories told without notes in front of a live audience. This hour, we have four stories for you. We're going to hear about an evangelical marketing plan, a dog napping, an unplayed cornet, and a therapy session that's both disastrous and successful. When The Moth works on developing a story with someone, we have a few guidelines. One is that we want the person telling the story to have been somehow changed by the events as they unfold. Some transformational stories happen in an instant, and some take much longer. For our first storyteller, Jen Lee, the transformation took most of her young life. Here's Jen, live at the Moth. So a lot of people are raised with a religion, and I'm one of those people that um, was raised with two. There was our official religion. My family is, and I was at the time, conservative evangelical Christians. But then there was the, our unofficial faith and hope we had in Mary Kay Cosmetics. <laughs> um, many of the women in my family had been Mary Kay Beauty consultants since I was a child. And I loved Jesus as long as I could remember, but that Mary Kay thing was, I was hoping to dodge that bullet. Um, I was this brainy grunge girl from Boulder County. I wore hemp jewelry and clothes from the Salvation Army. I had moral um, objections to wearing makeup. And when I got a scholarship to go out of state for college, I thought I'd made my big escape. But my last visit home, I listened to one recruiting tape too many. <laughs> and the logic and reason finally got to me, and I signed the dotted line. And I started my business as a Mary Kay Beauty consultant. Now, on paper, the business plan looks foolproof. All you're supposed to need is to have one friend to host a party for you, where you sell skincare and makeup to her friends. Then you're supposed to book two more every time. So your date book is never empty. But I could never book two more. I used the script. I thought I was fun to be with. I don't know what the problem was. <laughs> but luckily for me, there was like a hundred other ways they trained us to get bookings. And one of these ways was to strike up seemingly natural conversations with perfect strangers. <laughs> and we had, <clears throat> we had a name for this. We called this Warm Chatter. <laughs> And I thought, damn it, I am going to rock this. I'm going to be the queen of warm chatter. So what I'm about to tell you, I did this um, for a very long time, about two or three days a week for two or three hours a day. I would get dressed up in my business suit, and I'd put on all my makeup, and I'd pack my bag full of samples, and I would drive to Target. And in Target, I would get my red shopping cart, and I'd pr pretend I was shopping for items, but really... I was just hunting for women. I was, um, I was looking for women who looked cute or friendly or approachable. When I found somebody like this, then I would just discreetly follow her through the store <laughs> until we could be together in an aisle alone. <laughs> and then I would appear to just be walking by normally and I would slow down and in the most casual way possible I would say these words that I'd rehearsed a hundred million times I would say excuse me can I ask you a quick question I'm Jen with Mary Kay and we just came out with a new line of lip glosses and I need some women's opinions of it 
You know, I have some samples here in my bag. Is there any reason why you wouldn't want to take one home and try it? And this part was really important. We are trained to smile and nod while we ask the question. It has to do with the nonverbal communication and mirroring. It's very advanced. <laughs> and, um, and if she said yes, I'd give her the sample. I'd get her phone number. When I called her back later to thank her, I would offer her a complimentary appointment with me. And I wouldn't mention that all my appointments were complimentary because it just didn't seem important. <laughs> so at the same time I was doing this for my career, my husband and I were also leading, helping to lead programs for our local church. And this was the kind of church that was trying to be really hip and modern. It met in a strip mall, and we had a rock band, a rock band leading worship up front. The pastor was this 40-somethings British guy, and he really wanted to attract 20-somethings, so we were a hot commodity. We were right in the demographic. And we started to get promoted up into higher and higher echelons of leadership. So we were invited to the leadership team meeting and then the core leadership team meeting. And I still remember my first night at one of these meetings. And I don't know exactly what I was expecting, but I think I'd always imagined them to be kind of soulful events. And I was really dismayed to show up and discover it was this really tedious conversation about branding and marketing and what the church's next advertising campaign was going to be. So it didn't take too long before these two worlds, the church and Mary Kay, started to look more and more similar. Um, they both had the lure, and Mary Kay was giving out free samples, but at the church we were having free events to try and get people in the doors. In both worlds we were couching everything we did inside a conversation about service. So Mary Kay's company tagline at the time was, changing women's lives which if you think about it, isn't that different from saving people's souls. <laughs> and um, and we, really, we really believed it. We really thought we were doing this, even though nobody's motives are that pure. And in both worlds, I was being trained all the time to listen to people everywhere I went for whatever was missing or not working about their life and offer what we had as the solution. So if you needed time or money or flexibility, Mary Kay might be perfect for you. But if you're struggling with your marriage or you've had a recent loss, maybe you're questioning the meaning of life, call me crazy, but have you considered maybe Jesus is the answer? <laughs> and soon I just started to feel like a 24-hour saleswoman, and it started to get confusing, like which hat I was wearing at which time. Until one day I was in Target with my little red cart, and I saw this lovely looking redhead who smiled so big when I smiled at her. And I started into my script. Excuse me, can I ask you a quick question? Except this time it started to sound kind of flat, like those pull string dolls that sound kind of wonky at the end. And um, suddenly I was just thinking, does she need Mary Kate or does she need Jesus? <laughs> Does she need Mary Kay or does she need Jesus? And I don't know which one I offered her, but she said no because I was acting crazy. Um, and she turned and walked away. And I realized the problem with whenever you have something, whether it's a religion or a business, or anything else that you think is the right answer for everybody, through that lens, you can't help but look at everyone in the world as if they're broken and need to be fixed. And I didn't want to do that anymore. So I put my cart away at the front of the store and I drove home. The next night was my weekly success meeting. <laughs> and the director was up front telling us, giving us all the information about the new lipstick formula and the changes that were being made. And I started to look around the room at these women, and they were either my friends who I'd like recruited into it, or my relatives who had recruited me into it. And I was thinking about how devastating it would be when I quit, because I wasn't just rejecting everything they stood for, but I was letting down my friends. I'd gotten them into it, I was bailing on them. And then my relatives, the people who had recruited me, their income depended on me. Their income, their status, all of our fortunes were tied in together. 
And I thought, but is this really changing women's lives the way I hoped it would? And the director started passing around mirrors and lipstick samples for us to try it ourselves. And I thought, no, I don't think so anymore. And a couple days later was the church leadership meeting. And the pastor was telling us that the church's new mission statement needed to have five points, one for every finger on the hand, so people could remember it. And I started looking around this room and thinking about what they would think about me when I quit. They would think I was backsliding and falling off the wagon, but it was even worse than that. They would think I was going to hell, that my children were going to hell. And if I was wrong, maybe they would be right. And I thought, but is this really saving people's souls, this, all this that we're doing? And the pastor interrupted to say that all five points needed to start with the same letter. <laughs> and I thought, no. I don't think so anymore. And so that was when I stopped trying to save the world. And I decided to save myself instead from this life I didn't want anymore. And it, it really cost me. I lost my identity. I lost belonging. I lost the ability to ever be that certain or righteous about anything ever again. And if you can imagine what it's like to lose a faith, and then imagine what it's like to lose two at once. Because even though Mary Kay was a business, it wasn't just that. It was a way I thought the world worked. It's a way I thought that we could all win, and everybody could get what they needed. It was really devastating. I felt like I might not ever be able to trust myself again. The last piece of our exit strategy was our move to New York. We were going to get geographic distance, start fresh someplace else. We landed in Brooklyn in a neighborhood called Park Slope. And everywhere we went, people were either trying to recruit us into or warn us against joining the Park Slope Food Co-op. <laughs> and it seemed so unobjectionable. You know, like who can argue against cheap, organic, environmentally friendly food, community run? And part of me was really tempted because I thought, I can have my identity back. Everyone will know I'm a good person. And I can belong again. But there was something about the way that the people we talked to were just so convinced it was the right thing for everybody that felt creepily familiar. <laughs> and I thought, I know where that path leads. <laughs> so when one particularly zealous friend cornered me one day and said, are you going to join or not? Are you in or are you out? <laughs> I just took a deep breath. And I looked her in the eyes and I said, sorry, I don't do religions anymore. Thank you. That was Jen Lee. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two daughters. She leads workshops and retreats that focus on creative expression, and she still hasn't joined that food co-op. In a moment, we'll hear a story about a teenage boy trying to make ends meet in 1970s Harlem. Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson, senior producer of The Moth. Our next story is from Ernesto Quinones. He's an associate professor of English at Cornell University. We asked him to be in an evening of moth stories called Saints and Sinners, and without a moment's hesitation, he picked sinners. Here's Ernesto, live at El Museo del Barrio in New York City. 
My story starts uh, a few years ago, about five, six years ago, and I was in love with this girl, and I had moved in with her, and I was watching television, and uh, um, she was doing something else. I forgot what she was doing, but she wasn't watching television with me. And then um, she noticed that uh, tears were coming down my, my cheeks. She noticed that I was crying. So she stopped doing what she was doing, and she sat next to me. And uh, she looked at the television, because she knew that that's what was making me cry. And then she noticed that the images were of a cop movie, uh, a cop movie of the 70s, and she didn't get it. And she said, why is Serpico making you cry? <laughs> and I told her that that's my New York. It's the New York of my youth. That's the New York that I was raised in. This is the New York, the gritty New York, the, the urban blight, the, the benign neglect, the New York before gentrification. And I was telling her that this is what's making me cry. What did I do during that time? Well, I took care of myself. Um, I come from a family of seven here. It's neighbor, El Barrio, Spanish Harlem. I'm its native son. And we, um, we took care of ourselves. Uh, my dad used to work in a factory, and one day a steel drum fell on his back, and it broke his ribs. So my mom would always say, my mom would always say, we might never be rich, but we will always be clean, and we will never go on welfare. So there was absolutely no money. There was no money. And I wanted the things that other teenagers um, had. You know, I wanted Pumas. I wanted jeans. I wanted to go to the movies every now and then. But there was just no money. So uh, what did I do? I started stealing dogs. It was, a, it was a trick. It was a trick that I had learned from a junkie called Eddie. And basically, I would go with my best friend to the Upper East Side. And if you notice, the Upper East Side and Spanish Harlem are right there, back, in, back to back. You walk 20 minutes um, downtown, and you're in the richest, richest place on earth. You walk 20 minutes down, and you were in one of the poorest, which was El Barrio. So we would walk 20 minutes downtown. We would take a laundry bag and a knife, and, and we would... We look for small dog, because you're not going to steal a German Shepherd, because he'll kill you. <laughs> so we would look for small dogs. And uh, salons were good, because that's where most of the ladies were, um, post offices, um, cafes. And then we would cut the leash and stuff the dog in the laundry bag. And then we would just walk casually, walk away. And I would keep the dog in the house. I would keep him in the bathroom, leash to the radiator for like three, four days. And then I would go back around the block, the radius where I stole it, and look for the reward flyer. And in those days, there was no desktop publishing, there was no photo, Photoshop, nothing. So you actually either have a Polaroid of the dog or a very good description of the dog. So once we found the, the reward flyer, I will call up the number. And I remember that even back then, even though I did not know it, even though I did not know it, something told me that words had power, that words can uh, save you. And the word that I learned was aimlessly. The word was aimlessly. Because I will call and say, lady, I think we found your dog. He was walking aimlessly <laughs> in Central Park. And then I would uh, take the dog, but not this time. You don't take the dog with your friend. You take the dog with a little, with a little kid. And his job was to cry. So I would, take, I would take my little cousin, Ralphie, who was very cute. And I would say, Ralphie, if you cry, I give you, I'll buy you 100 penny candies, which is a dollar, a whole dollar of penny candies, which is 100 candies. And all he would have to do is cry. So when we would go, and it was almost all the time, it was a doorman building, building that you didn't, never had been in. And um, the lady would open the door and say, oh my God, thank you for bringing my dog. But my little, my little cousin would, would hold the dog and start crying. And I would say, it's the lady's dog. Okay, I know you like him, <laughs> but it's the lady's dog. I'll get you one just like it. And the lady would say, oh no, here's, a, here's, here's the reward. I said, no, all right. And um, what made me stop? I'll tell you what made me stop. It was uh, one night, and we had done this a few times. We had done this for almost a year, if not over a year. <laughs> and the, the rewards weren't bad, $50, $100, 70 This is a 1980, 1979, $70, okay? So that went nice, that went, that went, that went uh, a long way. So what made me stop is one night, I was watching Three's Company reruns with my sisters, and uh, my dad was at the table, he was still hurting, and my mom answered the door because two men knocked. It was these two white men with badges. And I knew something was wrong. And I knew something was wrong, but I played it off, and I just kept looking at the television with my sisters. And then my mom took a peek at me, 
and I knew that she was angry, and I knew that I had been caught. And then she called my father to come over, and then my father came over. And then my father looked at me, and he was angry, and I started bargaining with God. I said, God, if you give me a second chance, I swear I will stop. I will never do this again. And I respected my parents. I did, and I knew I was going to get it. I was going to get it big. So then my dad called me over, and I went over, and my dad said, didn't we teach you not to take things that are not yours? And I said, yes. And one of the white men who was there said, well, you know, if he has one of them here, we're here to take them back. So my dad just looked at me, and I said, yeah, I have one. So, so I, had, I, had this, uh, I had this dog in the, in the bathroom, and I had told my parents that this was my job. I was a dog sitter, because they, the, <laughs> they saw me with money. So, and sometimes I actually pay my mom like five bucks for the phone, so I was actually helping out too. So, um, not just always going to the movies and buying Jordash and, and Pumas. <laughs> anyway, so um, I brought the dog, I brought the dog, and, um, and I was this close to crying. And everybody was just standing still, everybody was just, my mom, my dad, the two white men. And, and I knew something was wrong too. I was like, okay, what, what's happening here? And, and um, the white men were actually there for library books. Way overdue library books. And in those days, um, I wanted to be a painter. That was my first love. My first love was painting, like many first loves. It did not love me back. I sucked. And I had borrowed all of these expensive books, uh, Van Gogh's, the Matisse, those big fat ones. I had borrowed them and I had not returned them and they were there to get them. So I took the dog back and I brought the books and I was so happy. That was my second chance. Now, years later, I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm an Ivy League professor, and I still, and I visit, I make it a point to visit juvenile detentions. And I go there, and I tell them the same story that I told you. I tell those juveniles. And I said, I could easily be behind those bars like you are, but I got a second chance. And each of you, each of you will get a second chance. And when you get that second chance, you take it. You take it or you will never fall in love. And that's my story. That was Ernesto Canones. His book, Bodega Dreams, is now required reading in many high schools and colleges around the country. When I asked him to clarify just what he meant with the ending of that story, the line where he says, if you don't, you'll never fall in love, he said, well, isn't that the worst threat? Isn't that the ultimate motivation? Isn't that the one thing everyone wants, to fall in love? By the way, in anticipation of the email Ernesto is likely to get, he says he took really good care of all the dogs, and every single one was returned to his or her proper owner. You're listening to the Moth Radio Hour. Our next story is from a Moth Story Slam. These are our open mic nights. We hold them regularly in New York, Los Angeles, Detroit, and Chicago, and soon, maybe, a city near you. Here's how they work. We announce a theme and invite anyone and everyone to come up with a five-minute story. Then, lottery style, we pick ten storytellers. Nobody knows who will be picked or what they'll talk about. We've heard from cab drivers, doctors, students, singers, engineers, whoever. At a recent slam in New York, a name was picked from the hat. The host said, our next storyteller will be Albert Mazels. Everyone started looking around. Wait, the actual Albert Mazels? The famous documentarian? The man behind the camera in Grey Gardens and Gimme Shelter? Well, yeah. There he was, 86 years old, taking the stage and looking out at us with his iconic thick black glasses. He had checked our website and liked the theme and headed down to put his name in the hat with 39 others. The theme that night was Fathers, and Mr. Mazels wanted to talk about his. Way, way back, when I was maybe seven or eight years old, my father and I had this custom. Each year, we would go to the big closet and uh, put on my father's World War I uniform. I'd wear the blouse he might put on the, on the boots and so forth. But I noticed that way, way back in the closet, there was this leather... Uh, sort of bag of sorts, uh, and uh, but it was somehow tabooed, so that 
neither he nor I said anything about it, except that one time we caught each other's eyes looking at that case, and my father went back into the rear of the closet, pulled, out, pulled the case forward, opened it up, and pulled a cornet out of it. He held it to his lips in such a way that I knew that he knew the instrument very well and played with the valves and then put the cornet back in the case and back in the closet. Several years later, the, the, the subject came up with my mother and my mother said, oh, you have to understand that just as you know that your Uncle Sam plays the violin and your Uncle Joe plays percussion, you also had an Uncle George who played another musical instrument. And when your Uncle George died before you were born, your father just didn't have the heart to play anymore. And so he's never played it. And uh, so years go by, and uh, I have the cornet on the kitchen wall. Uh, and uh, I look at it every time I'm having breakfast and remind, it reminds me of my father. And uh, one day, I noticed that the cornet needed to be polished. So I asked the housekeeper if she would polish it. A couple of days later, uh, as I gazed upon the cornet from a, something of a distance, I noticed that the front end had been smashed in. She had polished it, but she had must have dropped it. And I took the cornet to my studio, thinking, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I've got to get this fixed, but I don't know how I can possibly restore it to the way it was. And just around that time, uh, Wynton Marsalis comes to my studio to watch a film that my brother and I had just made of him and, and Catherine Battle. And uh, when he was through looking at the film, as he was about to leave, I brought the cornet to him and began to tell him the story when he put the cornet to his lips, moved the valves up and down, and played it for five or 10 minutes. Uh, the only time that I've heard the instrument played. And so when I walked back to my desk, I thought, oh, I gotta tell my mother. But she had died. Oh, I gotta tell my brother. But he had died. And so that's, that's the story of the cornet, but it's not the end of the story because my father, although he never played for me, he gave me a music appreciation course uh, that was the best I could possibly imagine because he would play wonderful classical music and I would just watch his face as his expressions changed according to the music. It gave me a profound love for music, and it also supplied me with a way of looking at music with my camera, in that, in that when you may have seen Gimme Shelter, one of the most beautiful scenes in the film is of the Rolling Stones listening to the playback of Wild Horses. And, and I think because of my love for my father's facial expressions connected with music, I focused on the face of each one of these guys as they were listening to the playback of the raw music. Just one thing more. When uh, I was in the Army in 1944 and only 18 years old, uh, I got news that my father wasn't well. And uh, so I got home, it took three days to get home. And as I entered the door, I saw that all the drawings and paintings had been covered. And my sister said, I've got to tell you that dad died. And uh, right away I said, but where's mom? And she said, you can't disturb her because she's been in bed now for three days reading whatever she can get her hands on, trying to find exactly the words that describe Dad and described him beautifully. 
And maybe it was two or three hours later that my mother called us all in, my brother and my sister and I, with a big smile on her face, I discovered it. And I think it was from the Bible. With clean hands and a pure heart. And I would add to that with a love for music that gave me that love to express as best I could through my camera. Thank you. That was Albert Mazels, live at a Moth Story Slam. Check out his extensive filmography. Note how many of his films are a celebration of music. To learn more about our slams and all of our programs, go to themoth.org, where you can also check out our free weekly podcast or pitch a story of your own. All of the stories you're hearing and many, many more moth favorites are available right on our website, themoth.org. In a moment, our final story about hipster neuroses and the dead-on advice of a therapist named Milton. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. I'm Jennifer Hickson, and you're listening to the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Next, we're going to hear from Dan Kennedy. You may recognize Dan as the regular host of our podcast. Well, long before we had a podcast, Dan was telling stories and hosting our story slams. He's shared a lot about his life, growing up on the West Coast and working in the music industry, but it's rare that he tells a story this personal. Here's Dan, live at the Moth. So uh, a couple months ago, I guess, I walk into this party in New York, and uh, I see this guy, and I see him around at a lot of different parties. I see him at a lot of different events, and uh, he's a therapist. And I always go over to him and I say hello um, because I gravitate towards therapists at parties. <laughs> and I actually sadly consider this progress. <laughs> um, I go up to him, I say hello, and we talk for like, you know, maybe five minutes and, uh, and I feel better. Every time I see this guy and I bump into him at, at a party, I say hello to him, I'm in a better mood. And I think to myself, Maybe I should have a better plan for my mental health than just bumping into this guy at parties. And I think maybe I should go back to therapy. But I don't really want to go back to therapy, I don't think, because I had, my thing was I was in therapy for years. I had such a clean break with it. Like I got the tools I needed to sort of go off and not have to do it anymore. And it came to a really clean end. And, and I don't take it for granted because I hear a lot of people talk about therapy and they never quite know when it ends. You know, it's like, do you, do you think you're ready for it to end? I don't know, do you think I'm thinking I'm ready for it to end? <laughs> because you think I thought that? Or, and this can go on for years. So before I get back in that situation, you know, I really need to think about it. See, in 1998, my life wasn't going super hot. Um, and by that, I mean I was working at like a nine-to-five job that I hated. Um, I was in a terrible relationship, really. I mean, great person. Things were just on a downhill slide for a long time, um, largely helped by me, I'm sure. Also, uh, I wasn't really doing anything that I love. My idea of... of writing, which is something I said I wanted to do, was to go to restaurants after my nine-to-five job let out and just drink lots of like mid-priced cocktails and eat really bad appetizers and talk about how I, I'm probably a genius, you know? 
which is not really the hallmark of genius, <laughs> ironically enough. So I had this group of friends, and their lives all seemed to get like better as time went on. Not in any like necessarily big flashy way, but like their apartments got nicer as time went by. Their relationships got stronger as life went by. Their jobs got better. They got promoted. They did more interesting things as time went by. I was like sort of living backwards. As, as time went by, my apartments got smaller and worse. And as time went by, my relationships, uh, they ended, you know, frankly. And I thought, well, maybe I should find out what's up with these guys. The one thing they all had in common is they talked to this guy named Milton. So I'm real sleuth-like, and I'm like, hmm, I watched this for like another year. And I'm like, maybe I should talk to Milton. So I go, would it be weird if I talked to Milton? They go, it wouldn't be weird at all. You know, you should call him up, you know, get an appointment. So I go, great. I call this guy up. I get an appointment. I'm going to see him Fridays at 6.30. So great. I go in. I meet him. He, he looks like, you know, sort of like a real southern gentleman from this other era. He's very, very lanky. He's tall. Um, he's, he's an older guy, gray, wears suits, real like dapper dresser. And uh, so we start this, this thing. And I like the fact that he's not a therapist. He's, he's a licensed social worker. He's, he's a counselor, right? Which really fits with a sort of like nuts and bolts approach to this. Like, I'm not going to be laying on a Mies, you know, Vandero daybed, like <laughs> mumbling about luxury problems, clearly. So this is right up my alley. So, and he has, he has this like really sort of special sort of method, you know? It, it largely involves making jokes about me. And, uh, and, and I kind of get the point through this humor. And uh, so, you know, I talk to him about things. I, I go, you know, I tell him, you know, whatever I'm going through. Like, because I never knew how to say no, for instance. Like, I would always just say yes. So it's like, you know, if I'm out to dinner with somebody that I don't, I, I can tell is trouble, and they go, you want to be in a relationship? I'm like, yes, yeah, sounds fun. <laughs> Even though I'm not nuts about being at dinner with you, let's give this one to three years. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it would be like, would you like this job for this salary? And I'd think, how the hell am I going to live on that in New York City? And I'd go like, yes, thank you very much. You know, that, that'll be fine. Um, so I was telling Milton about this one time, and he goes, oh, well, have you ever read A Thousand Times No? And I'm thinking, oh, God, here comes, like, the cheesy self-help book assignment, right? But I want to be, like, willing and get my life together. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, I haven't. Um, <laughs> read that, but I'm really willing to get a copy and check it out. And I go, I will definitely buy one. I'm thinking like, no. And, um, and he goes, oh, hang on. I think I've got a copy in the other room. And I'm like, oh, traffic. Like, All right, great. Um, so he comes back with this eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and it just says no a thousand times on it. And he's like, thought this was pretty funny. And I kind of thought, I think I like this dude. Like, <laughs> This is going to work. I, I told him, I was telling him like something about a terrible week I had had. And I was like, you know, this isn't going great. My job sucks, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, how many beers did you have this week? And I'm like, well, I mean, I get what you're saying. It wasn't a total write-off. Like, I got to have some beers, you know, like, I get it. Don't be negative, you know. Uh, so I was like, well, yeah, it's true. I did get to have some beers. And then I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Are you saying there's like a link between my drinking and things not going well for me? And he leans back and he goes, well, you're, you're part Irish, your last name's Kennedy, and all your heroes are writers, so let's just keep an eye on it. <laughs> I was like, yeah. all right. I get what you're saying there. And uh, it planted this seed, you know? His, his humor is sort of like planted this seed. So I thought, all right. And I had been writing things. Uh, they were terrible. They were, as the time went by, they were mostly like very not commercially viable things, very short things on the internet. Like I wrote a piece called um, Rejected uh, Riddles by Depressives, you know? And uh, what I would have said to Sylvia Plath had I been her boyfriend. You know, gems like this. And but occasionally I would get these emails from like junior editors at publishers and I would sort of tell him about that. Say today this, this, this like junior editor at a publisher emailed me. It kind of made me feel like I'm doing something. 
And he's like, oh, they're rolling out the red carpet for you, young man. <laughs> I'm like, what? I'm like, no, that's not even, you know, forget it. That's not even why I mentioned it. But uh, the other sort of awkward thing is that well, two things, really. He taught me to cry sort of apropos of nothing. And I found that a little awkward. He was like, you know, sometimes when things get painful, what I do is I put on some sad music, I get a towel or a handkerchief, and I sit down on the couch, and I let the feelings come, and then you move on. And I was like, <clears throat> okay, like, you know, that's great for you. I will never be using that, you know, by the way. Um, and he also had this weird thing with his humor. He started getting into stand-up comedy at age 65, which made for a weird relationship sometimes because he'd like, finish this session where you're talking about all this stuff, and he would go like, well, you know, I'm afraid we're out of time, but if you got five minutes, I'd like to show you this DVD of the set I did at Caroline's on Tuesday. <laughs> And you'd literally be like standing in the living room, sort of like after you like talked about all this really intimate stuff, and you'd be like, eh, it's, it's pretty good about how like women don't care about you or whatever. You know, like, ah, that's a good joke, I guess. Like, it's a little weird, sir, I should go now. <laughs> so uh, I should also mention that one of the ways I start to realize that I'm close to somebody is I find myself thinking about their death a lot. And I know most folks, you probably just look at the beautiful person across from you at the table and go, I care about you, you're very special to me. I, on the other hand, just get quiet and start imagining them dead. <laughs> and how sad I'll be when that happens. So needless to say, like Valentine's Day is a pretty loaded holiday for me. <laughs> it's like a sort of long, morose, quiet day where I'm just like re-envisioning someone I really love's funeral and getting depressed. So Valentine's Day 2002, the day after it, I have a session. So I get there early, February 15th, I think. I want to be on time for this. It's probably going to be a little bit loaded after this sick holiday that people have. And, and uh, I get there. I buzz the door. Milton's not answering. So it's a little bit weird. Hmm. Buzz it again. He's still not answering. I wait five minutes. Buzz it. No answer. Call him on his cell phone. He's not answering. So I go, hmm. This is really weird. So I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, well, I gotta take some kind of action. He always taught me that time is finite, and, and you have to always take action. That's what keeps you from getting sad and, and sort of stagnant. So I'm like, ah, oh, ring it again. I guess that's action. I ring it again. Nothing's happening. Cleaning lady comes running down, and she goes, come quick, it's Milton, come quick. And I go, like, I didn't sign up for any of this. Uh, this is terrible. So. I go in, I start running up the stairs, and I'm thinking, I don't want to wait for the elevator, and I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm running into, but I just keep thinking what he said to me, always move forward, always choose activity. So I'm charging up the steps going, I don't know even what the hell I'm going to do. And I'm thinking, well, he always said, when you go forward, you'll be able to intuitively handle what used to baffle you. So I'm going, Jesus, okay, okay. So I get up there. I look around, I call his name, I don't see him anywhere, then suddenly I see him and he's in his bathrobe still. I'm like, that's really weird. I mean, he's not normal like, for him at all. I go, Milton, Milton, I call his name. He doesn't respond, I run up to him and I feel him and I go, oh my God, he's dead. And I just think he's just left, it's just that simple. He's gone, but he kind of left this here. So I'm like, I don't know what to do, so who do you call? Like the police, it seems a little silly. An ambulance is too late for that. So I think, well, just call 911. They'll intuitively know how to handle this. So I call them. And I go, who do you send for something like this? They go, we'll send an ambulance and a medical examiner. And I go, OK, all right, cool. So that's handled. In the time it takes them to get there, I have like 10 minutes to kind of sit and just say goodbye. And I'm sitting and I'm thinking about how much better my life has gotten because of this man over the years. You know, I've, not been drinking over the years. I've been doing my writing. I, at the time, now have my first book contract. And my first book is coming out in just a few months at this time. And I realize I'll be dedicating it to him. And I'm in a great relationship at this point, one that I'm still in 11 years later. And I'm thinking of all the things he changed in all the other people's lives, all my friends' lives that he's touched and that he's changed. And thinking, it's amazing. And then I, I think about how he said, Days are finite, we only have so many. And I kind of look at him and I think, 
you know, certainly drove that home in this session, sir. <laughs> the medical examiner comes, and I say one final goodbye, and I take off. And for the week after that, I was numb. I didn't really feel anything, and this kind of surprised me. But uh, like a week later, I'm in the apartment, and something's happening. I'm going, oh, like he's not coming back. There's not going to be any more Friday nights at 6.30. This is, he's totally gone. And I'm like, oh no, I'm having like feelings. <laughs> oh no, okay. Uh, all right, right, right. You told me what to do. Uh, so I go into the bathroom. I get a towel, okay. <laughs> get a towel. I'll sit on the edge of the couch. He's like, oh, right, all right. Music, you have to put on like sad classical music. I don't have any sad classical music. I look through my CDs, it's all pretty much punk rock. So I'm like, I'm gonna put on Black Flag or Fear and weep violently. And that's gonna be more disturbing than what I went through, I think. But my girlfriend had this CD of this guy who just, I never saw the point of it, he just plays this cello and it just goes forever. I mean, forever, like, in the key of, like, D-sad. It's just, like, <laughs> the most grim notes, and they go forever, and I thought, that is... Now I know why this man made his record. I put it in the CD player, I get my towel, I sit, the feelings come, I feel them, and then I move forward. Thanks. That was Dan Kennedy from a show called Stiffs, stories of the nearly and dearly departed. Dan is the author of Rock On, an office power ballad, and Loser Goes First. If you want to hear more Moth, go to themoth.org, where you can learn about all our programs. If you have a story to share, make a pitch yourself right on our website. Hi, this is Phil Goldman. Um, I was living in Tokyo and trying to find work as an English teacher, which I was not qualified for, and I couldn't find any work teaching English. I was getting desperate because I was broke, and I saw an ad in the English language paper in Tokyo that said, uh, foreign men wanted for a male strip club. Um, I'm not a male strip type. I'm short. I'm balding. I've got a hairy body. I'm flabby. Um, but I do have some comedic timing. Um, I called the place, I made an appointment, I met the guy and walked right up to him. And he, well, once he saw what he had, he was about to open his mouth and I said, wait, before you say anything, let me just say two words. Novelty Act. You can pitch us your story at themoth.org. Record it right on our site or call 877-799-MOTH. That's 877-799-6684. Again, our website is themoth.org. We hope you'll tune in next time, and that's the story from The Moth. Your host this hour was Jennifer Hickson, the Moth's senior producer. Jennifer also directed the stories in this show. All the people that did not tell a story, I'm going to read your names. Please come up on stage and recite the first sentence of your story. The rest of the Moth's directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Jenna Weiss-Berman and Brandon Ector. Time is to love as wind is to fire. It puts out the small ones, but builds up the big ones. Moth stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from John Zorn, the Eastman Wind Ensemble and Wynton Marsalis, and Yo-Yo Ma. 
Uh, the next time your child tells you her arm hurts and she thinks it's broken, you should probably listen to her. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. I'm here on a jade date, and I was set up with this guy, uh, some Aussie and Tim, and never he never uh, showed up. Thank you. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. One of the first grown-up words I remember learning was eyesore, which was how the representatives of the county zoning board explained their reason for being at our house as summoned by our neighbors. <laughs> The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. Last night, I used an ice cube to make my tongue really cold so I could pour magic shell, an ice cream topping that hardens on cold ice cream, over my tongue. It didn't work. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.